Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth of your word and we thank you that your loving kindness and perfect wisdom, that in those things you have crafted your word to give us a glimpse into not only your holiness and justice, but also into your mercy, into your grace. We thank you for your son Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not, not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And we thank you for the gift of your Holy Spirit, by whom your love has been poured into our hearts. Lord, we ask that as we open your word this morning, that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear so that we might better understand the passage, that it might also bring us comfort and give you glory as we seek to follow you and become salt and light to those who are around us. We pray these things in your name, Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Amen. So, we're at the end of May, and that signals more than Memorial Day weekend. For those of us who are students or teachers, and that is my vocation, this time of year gives us reason to celebrate because we have taken and graded our final exams. School is out. Can I get an amen? All right. In recent weeks, I've listened to my students studying and preparing for their examinations. I say studying and preparing because those two ideas mean very different things in this time and place. With the ability of online grading programs and the requirement that we as teachers post grades every week, students have access to a steady stream of data that wasn't available to them even a decade ago. So heading into finals, they can easily calculate what they need to score on an exam, which counts for 20% of their semester average, in order to maintain or improve their report card grades. And that can be a good thing. But too often, I hear them say something like, I only need a 72 on this exam to keep my, to keep my A in the class. So why study? And I could be watching Dr. Strange. The deeper implication is that grades have become the primary goal which is a shame because the primary goal should be mastering the course content, showing a deeper appreciation for and the understanding of calculus, physics, and English, among others. I think most of us can agree that grades certainly provide motivation for academic success. But they shouldn't serve only as a means to it. They should serve only as a means to an end and not to the, the end itself. I mean, what's wrong with kids today? Don't worry, I'm not going to tell you to get off my lawn. <laughs> because I remember back when I was in college, you know, before there was fire. My students actually believe that. Uh, my strategy was to attend the first few lectures in order to assess whether I needed to purchase a textbook for the course. I mean, they were expensive. Or could I just get by writing down everything that the professor said so I could dutifully parrot it back to him 
and get and ace the exam. Don't be like me. My binge and purge approach consisted of committing those notes to short-term memory just long enough to ace the test and then clearing my mental hard drive in order to repeat the process for the next exam. Why did I do that? Well, to check a box, which I hoped would lead to a good job, which was, I was told, a key ingredient to a happy life. The coursework served only as a means to an end. As a result, I graduated with a general idea regarding my field of study, but with very little passion for the profession that I had not yet been captivated by. Bad sentence. In our passage this morning, we're going to be confronted by the story of two followers of Jesus. One who runs a cost-benefit analysis and becomes enslaved by his idol and desires and turns on Jesus, and another who sets herself aside in the complete adoration of her Savior. Throughout the study of Mark, we've seen that when you encounter Jesus and see him for all that he represents, once you see Jesus for who he really is, and not just who you want him to be, whenever you enter into a relationship with Jesus, the result will be transformative. You will begin to fundamentally change. Now, during our study in Mark, we've seen the author employ a consistent strategy where he frames the primary narrative with a secondary narrative that helps us call it that helps call attention to the meat of the message. We call this strategy a Markin sandwich. And we've seen nine of them so far, so this is the tenth in the book of Mark. In recent weeks we've seen Jesus in the temple turning away challenges from religious, scholarly, and political opponents who were seeking a way to discredit him and ultimately have him arrested and removed from the scene permanently if possible. Jesus exposes the hypocrisy in all of his challengers. He continues to establish his authority by explaining how a Psalm of David points to him as the Messiah. Jesus then pronounces judgment on the temple and leaves it for the last time as it no longer is necessary because the kingdom of God has arrived in the person of Jesus. He then travels up the Mount of Olives in a manner that recalls the presence of the Lord leading the temple as recorded by the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. While on the Mount of Olives, Jesus responds to his disciples' questions regarding first the destruction of the temple and later Jesus' second coming and the day of the Lord, admonishing his disciples, and by extension us, to be on guard and to stay awake. Again, Jeremiah will preach through the end of chapter 13 next week, but that gets us up to where we are at the beginning of chapter 14. So today we're going to examine the first 11 verses in chapter 14. So let's begin with the two slices of bread that frame the meat of the package in today's Mark and Sandwich. I hear some stomachs grumbling at this point, I'm sure. Talking about lunch, or maybe not. So here's how we begin. In verses 1 and 2, we see that the chief priests were seeking to kill. And in verses 10 and 11, 
we find that G Judas is seeking to betray. Those two actions form a narrative broken by the story of a here unnamed woman anointing Jesus. So people seeking to kill, Judas seeking to betray, and the woman anointing Jesus. Top slice of bread, bottom slice of bread, meat of the sandwich. Chapter 14 begins this way. It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. Now each year, thousands of Jews would make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to remember God's salvation and how he delivered them out of bondage in Egypt. Chapter 14 marks a turning point in Mark's overall narrative. Setting up the climax of the crucifixion one week later. Everything we've seen so far in the book of Mark has been leading up to Christ's atoning work on the cross. Everything so far has been foreshadowing that work. So it's no coincidence that Jesus died as a final sacrificial lamb during the week of the Passover. Today we'll see the first event in what's typically described as Jesus' passion, the last week of his life before his crucifixion, before he rose again, ascended into heaven. So the chief priests, who had been embarrassed by Jesus and their exchange with him in the temple, and been made jealous by the attention that he had received from others, well, they wanted to kill Jesus. But they had a problem. During the week-long Passover celebration, the population of Jerusalem increased by three to five times its normal size. Everybody was pouring into Jerusalem, and many of those pilgrims would have known about and witnessed firsthand Jesus' ministry. Remember back in chapter 11 when we read about Jesus' triumphal entry into the city? He was drawing a crowd, a crowd of people who were shouting, Hosanna, glory to God. They certainly couldn't kill Jesus during the Passover celebration without triggering some kind of uproar. They had this problem. want to kill him. What are we going to do? Well, their solution arrives in the form of one of Jesus' closest associates, a friend. In verses 10 and 11, we read, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. pretty weighty couple of verses there. After three years of walking closely with Jesus and being personally loved and discipled by him, Judas joins the efforts to take down the Christ. He joins the efforts to kill Jesus. He willingly joins the opponents of Jesus and looks for an opportunity to betray him. Notice that the verse says that Judas was one of the twelve. 
Judas walked with Jesus for three years, during which time he had unrestricted and privileged access to the Christ. Let that just sit there for a minute. Judas witnessed firsthand the greatest life ever lived. In his book, Heaven So Near, So Far, The Story of Judas Iscariot, Colin Smith writes, you can't have a better model of faith than Jesus or a better environment for forming faith than Judas had in walking with the Savior. He directly witnessed miracles. When Jesus fed the 5,000, Judas was there. He took bread and he distributed it along with the other disciples. When Jesus calmed the storm, Judas was there. And he was there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You can't have better evidence for faith than Judas had. Now Smith goes on to point out that Jesus or Judas heard Jesus preach as well. He heard the sermons, he heard the parables, he heard the warnings to the Pharisees. Judas himself was sent out to preach and to perform miracles, to cast out demons. He heard of God's judgment and he heard of God's tenderness and mercy. And yet he sought an opportunity to betray Jesus. Judas, one of the twelve, who heard the gospel preached by the gospel incarnate, sought the opportunity to betray Jesus. We read in another gospel account that Judas sold Jesus, the king of heaven, for 30 pieces of silver, which was approximately the price to pay for the lowliest of slaves in that day. Jesus, who served, or Judas, who served as the treasurer for Jesus' earthly ministry, crunched the numbers and came to the conclusion that Jesus' perceived value, his value to Judas, made him expendable. Judas' affection for Jesus had waned as his affection for material gain increased. He was willing to follow Jesus only as far as that relationship supplied Judas with his depraved heart's desire. Pastor John Lenz suggests that Judas shows us that all of us have been conditioned to view the world around us instrumentally where we are always calculating whether our gains will outweigh our initial investment. We do this in our jobs. We do it in our studies. We do it in our relationships. And we even do it in our faith. Such cost-benefit analysis can utterly destroy us, as it did Judas. Judas ran the numbers and determined that following Jesus no longer felt beneficial to him. In the church, we increasingly hear of deconversion stories, telling us of apparently once ardent followers of Jesus who have renounced their faith. And I suspect that like Judas, they saw a perceived benefit in following Jesus that no longer feels beneficial to them. 
And I can't help wondering what they saw in Jesus in the first place. What were they really chasing? Which leads me to ask a similar question of myself. What do I really want from Jesus? Do I want a moral compass? Parental approval? A solid marriage? Well-behaved kids? Good health? A prosperous life? The list potentially is endless. But how far am I willing to follow Jesus? What if these personal desires, all of them good things that can receive more attention than they deserve, all of these good desires, what if they don't unfold the way I think that they should? Am I following Jesus because I'm captivated by his beauty? Or have I run a cost-benefit analysis and found that Jesus has a lot of upside for me personally? Another way that we're like Judas is that we all sin. And get this. Every sin against Jesus is betrayal. Say that again. Every sin against Jesus is betrayal. Judas's betrayal of Jesus seems particularly heinous because he was in a close personal friendship with Jesus. Scripture describes Jesus's relationship to those he has called as family, as that of a brother, as a spouse, representing the closest of personal relationships. Non-Christians sin against the Lord only in his relationship to them as creator and king. They owe him obedience because he made them and he owns them. But Christians, on the other hand, sin against the Lord in his relationship to them as redeemer and brother. We're doubly obligated to him, for he sacrificed for us, and we have entered into a close personal family relationship with him. So all sins against him are personal betrayals that call for confession and repentance in order to restore a broken relationship. Judas, on the other hand, had the appearance of being a Christ follower, but his commitment to Jesus proved to be only superficially religious. Tim Keller writes, the key difference is that Judas did not repent after he sinned. He simply despaired. It was not the magnitude of his feeling, but the nature of his despair that indicated an unregenerate heart. When a person will not repent, it shows a fundamental disorientation toward and rejection of God's grace. To say, I know God forgives me, but I can't forgive myself. Or to say, God can't forgive me, actually proves a rejection of the gospel of grace and a reliance on good works as a system for salvation. Mark next introduces us to a woman who perceives Jesus' worth in very different terms than Judas does. Her relationship with Jesus provides a stark contrast. While Judas is an insider seeking self-enrichment, which is the object of his worship, this here unnamed woman performs a Jesus-centered, self-forgetful act, pouring out her treasure on Jesus, the person of her worship, 
not the object. Verse 3 says, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and broke the flask and poured it over his head. The woman enters the room, snaps the neck off an expensive container, and breaks open a flask of fragrant oil and proceeds to anoint Jesus with its contents. We read in John 12 that Judas calculated the, val the value of the imported nard at 300 denarii, approximately a year's wage. In today's currency, that would amount to between forty dollars and $50,000 based on the average salary in the United States. This was no small gesture. This was not a bottle of perfume that sat on her dressing table. The nard was likely a family heirloom set aside for either for a dowry on the occasion of a wedding or for preparing a body for burial. It had been passed down from generation to generation. And because the flask did not have a stopper, but was sealed, all as one piece, all of the contents had to be used at once. They could be used only once. Such ointment cost much because it signified much when it was poured out. We read here that the woman broke the flask and poured the contents over Jesus' head. In the, in the um, Gospel of John, we read that not only did she pour it over his head, but she poured it on his feet and proceeded to wipe his feet with her hair in a gesture of selflessness. It's a beautiful, selfless act. One that should have provoked worshipful response from those gathered around Jesus, but that's not what happened. This might be a good point to go back to the fact that the Olivet Discourse, which we've been studying for the past two weeks and we'll return to next week, is framed by the selfless act of two women who are directly commended by Jesus. In the first instance, we find a widow who deposits only two coins, all that she has, into the offering box in the temple, and the other, this woman, who pours out a valued and significant family heirloom on Jesus, who's the object of her adoration. In, be in between, we see the disciples changing the subject from Jesus' teaching about the kingdom. So when he was pointing out the woman who was depositing the coins into the temple treasury and saying that she has deposited much more than those who had given from a place of wealth, and they're leaving the temple, the disciple turns to him and says, look at these great stones. Look at this temple. Look at this thing. There's a disconnect there. And Jesus immediately proceeds to tell them, yeah, this thing, this beautiful thing, it's going to be nothing. There'll be nothing left. No stone will be left on top of another stone. It will be dismantled. This thing that you're looking at as the pinnacle of achievement, as the pinnacle perhaps of adoration for God. Look, we built this beautiful thing that now has become the thing in honor of God. 
These, these disciples clearly are not understanding what Jesus is explicitly teaching. Either that, or they have not yet exchanged their notion of who they want Jesus to be with the reality of who he is. Remember, they've been hanging with him for three years. So returning to verse 3, we find a person whose eyes have been opened to the beauty of Jesus, which summons in her a selfless, profligate response. Her relationship to Jesus is based solely on who he is. She's not calculating what's in it for me. Instead, her response is glorifying, not calculating. Now, Mark doesn't name the woman, but in John 12, we learn that she is Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, whom Jesus has recently raised from the dead. Even so, Mary's gesture provokes shock and disbelief and condemnation from the disciples on hand, in no small part because of the material value of the gesture. Remember, it was equal to a year's salary. That's not what she had saved up over time. That's an entire year's salary. Now, the disciples were not opposed to giving Jesus gifts of devotion, but Mary's act felt beyond reasonable. Mary's act felt ridiculous. What are you doing? And these critics were disciples of Jesus. Let's look at verses 4 and 5 to see how they called her out. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was this ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. Now the word scolded here has been translated from the Greek as snorting like a wild stallion or even roaring like a lion. This was no small condemnation. This was a very public berating. In John 11, we read that Judas voiced what the others in the room were thinking and adds that he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Jesus' defense of the woman proved to be nothing short of remarkable. He begins by refuting their accusations, saying she has done a beautiful thing to me in verse 6. Jesus then defends Mary's act of worship because she placed him before anything else. Jesus points out, you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. Ken Hughes, who we've referenced many times in our study in Mark, says, Here we have a sublime irony. Mary's gift was really a gift to the poor. She saw Jesus in those ominous days before the crucifixion as the poor man par excellence. And thus her act was ultimately an act of kindness toward the poor. Now, Additionally, some have misunderstood this text as a prophecy about the inevitability of of poverty. But Jesus isn't suggesting that ministry to the poor is pointless or ineffective. Notice that Jesus says, you always have the poor with you. 
The fact that the anointing of Jesus takes place in the home of Simon the leper, whom Jesus likely healed, who before that point was a social outcast that no one was allowed to come near, the fact that it occurred in Simon the leper's house only serves to underscore Jesus' ministry to the poor and to social outcasts who were there with him. Here Jesus is instead suggesting that his disciples, by virtue of following his teaching, will always be in proximity to the poor. Because Jesus was always in proximity to the poor. As we have seen throughout Mark, Jesus and his followers entered the difficult place of poverty and lift up the downtrodden again and again and again. Rather than diminish our attitudes toward the poor, Trevin Wax says, Jesus' words challenge us to be present in the places of greatest need. But sometimes even good ministry can get in the way of our worship. The disciples rightly saw that the expensive ointment could have been put to more practical use in ministry to the poor. But we're not always called to devote our money to what's most practical. Sometimes... God wants the best and most beloved displays of our love and worship for him. If we magnify his work by our gifts, he receives our glory. Finally, Jesus makes perhaps the most startling defense of Mary's extravagant display of adoration. He says, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Did Mary know that Jesus would die soon? Maybe. In a Gospel Coalition post this week, Rebecca McLaughlin asked the question, did Jesus have female disciples? And the answer clearly is yes. Luke 2 shows that the 12 apostles were a subset of Jesus' disciples. And after a night of prayer, he calls his disciples and chose from them 12 whom he named apostles. Luke also makes clear that the larger group of disciples included many women in chapter 8 where we read of three such women in particular. In naming these women, McLaughlin writes, Luke is likely signaling that they are among the witnesses on whose testimony he draws for his account of Jesus' life. So it could be that Mary was listening more intently when Jesus clearly told his disciples that the Son of Man would be, lit, be delivered over to the high priest and the, scribes and, we, and, and the scribes who would condemn him to death, mock him, spit on him, flog him, and kill him, and that after three days he would rise. Others argue that Mary didn't know exactly that Jesus would soon die, but instead perceived more deeply the magnitude of his worth and her love for him. Remember, he recently had raised her brother Lazarus from the dead. Either way, Jesus knew. He knew he was soon going to die and felt comforted by Mary's gesture of worship. Mary's completely self-forgetful act helped her Savior prepare for the terrible experience immediately set before him. And as a result, he memorialized her, drawing attention not to who she was, but rather to her devotion to his glory, his 
despite what the others in the room might think. Again, Tim Keller says, we are not to love Jesus instrumentally in order to get things from him, like health, wealth, and happiness. We're to love Jesus aesthetically for the sheer beauty of who he is and what he has done. The disciples had not reached the spiritual level of this woman. They believed Jesus was the Messiah, and he in some way was going to liberate them, but their devotion to him was still calculated and limited. There was a limit to what they thought appropriate to give him. Now, if Jesus memorializes this woman as if he points to her as an example, there might be something that we can learn. First, the implication is that we can never give too much to Jesus. This goes far beyond a tie. The Christian gives generously to Christ's mercy because of who Jesus is. Second, it can be costly to obey Christ in terms of social and emotional capital, but that's okay because there's nothing in this world of comparable worth to Christ. As a result, Mary's act is self-forgetful. Because her love centered on Jesus, she doesn't care what others think. Her belief in Jesus engages her whole heart. The lavishness of her generosity, the boldness of her gesture, flow from the deep, passionate love that she feels for her Savior. Finally, Mary's act shows radical vulnerability. She appears to give up her money, her savings, her social credibility because she places her ultimate trust in Jesus. These are the marks of a person who's not following Jesus for what she can get, but rather for who he is. She's not following Jesus to get things. Following to get him. The critics in the room fail to see the beauty of Jesus' forthcoming sacrificial expression, his lavishness, his extravagant act on the cross. Jesus' act already is complete, so we should neither expect or ask anything in return. Jesus poured himself out for the unworthy, the infinitely worthy for the utterly unworthy. This woman pours out her worldly treasure for the endlessly worthy Jesus. When you recognize this, it fundamentally changes everything. No longer do you seek Christ for how he can help you live your best life now. But rather you seek him for the beauty of who he is. We often sing a song around here, and one of the verses goes like this. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Heavenly Father, we thank you. For Jesus, we thank you for his act of lavishness. 
his extravagance in going to the cross to die for us in what, when we were yet sinners, when we were yet shaking our fists and saying, on our own, we can live. Jesus, we thank you for this example of this woman who forgot about herself, set herself aside in adoration of you. And we ask that as we ponder her act in juxtaposition with an act of betrayal, that you would center us on our motivation for why we follow you. That it wouldn't be to get stuff to make our lives more comfortable, but rather because we see the beauty in you and all that you've done. To you be the glory. We pray these things in your name. Amen.